our planet has just endured the hottest northern hemisphere summer on record. In fact, July was Earth's hottest month ever recorded, full stop. Now, the heat has been fueled, of course, by the uh, arrival of El Nino combined with the hurricane-induced climate change, and it doesn't bode well for our southern summer. Now, these days, more than half of the world's eight billion-odd people live in urban areas. So as temperatures continue to rise, how can cities adapt to keep cool? Enter the tropical metropolis of Singapore. Singapore's PM has uh, described climate change as a life-and-death situation. More on that later. And the government is uh, making, well, concerted efforts to dampen the impact of global heating. So what can we learn here in Oz? Dr Winston Chow is a leading global expert on urban climate. He's an associate professor at Singapore Management University and uh, a principal investigator for the Cooling Singapore Initiative. Oh, and uh, co-chair of the IPCT Working Group on Climate Impacts adaption and vulnerability. And uh, from an Australian perspective, we're joined by Dr. Sebastian Fouch. Uh, Sebastian is Associate Professor in Urban Planning and Management at Western Sydney University. And they both uh, attended the uh, International Conference on Urban Climate recently held in Sydney. Gentlemen, welcome. Winston, we know Singapore is a humid city, but just how significant is this problem of urban heating? Uh, good evening, Philip, and thanks for inviting me onto the show. Well, uh, Singapore has a significant urban heat problem. Uh, if you've been to Singapore, you know that the commercial heart is found in Orchard Road downtown. Uh, we've made some measurements comparing temperatures there with the uh, tropical rainforest that rings the urban metropolis. Uh, on average, the temperature differences can be about four to about four and a half degrees Celsius, but the maximum difference that we've measured is about 7 degrees. So if it's 30 degrees at night in Orchard Road, uh, it's about 23 degrees in the tropical rainforest surrounding it. Winston, I didn't realise that uh, Singapore has warmed at twice the global average rate over the last 60 years, and I guess that's due to intense urbanisation. Uh, indeed, it is partly due to the uh, very rapid urbanization. We've uh, gone from a, uh, a jungle, so to speak, until a, a metropolis over 50 years. Uh, about half of that warming rate is due to the conversion of rainforests into you know, the buildings, the roads, and all the uh, waste heat generated from traffic and air conditioning. Uh, but about half of that warming is also uh, com comes from um, global warming itself, from climate change that uh, all of us, uh, regardless of where we're at, we're facing right now. I understand that Singapore has a, another problem and that it doesn't get much wind or breeze. <sighs> 
Indeed, uh, we are right uh, one degree north of the equator, so we don't really have uh, consistent winds uh, over the course of the seasons, uh, like you do in Sydney or in most parts of uh, New South Wales. Uh, so we don't have the same comfort if you're walking along the streets of Singapore. You don't have that nice breeze that you'll feel uh, that helps to cool you down when it gets rather hot and humid. Would you be kind enough to explain the term urban heat island? Sure, it'll be my pleasure. Uh, the heat island is caused when you replace all the um, the, the natural vegetated landscape uh, that you find in rural areas or non-urban areas. Uh, when you replace it with um, concrete, you replace it with asphalt. Uh, what happens is that these urban materials, they store heat during the day. And at night, what it does is that it releases the heat and it leads to the warmer temperatures that we experience that we typically call the heat island. So if you can imagine a temperature graph, um, the warmer temperatures that you see in the city are akin to an island rising from a, an ocean of coolness that surrounds uh, these urban areas and settlements. And as you point out, the heat is multiplied by vehicle exhaust and I guess air conditioning plants. Indeed, uh, that's one of the, 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 the bad things about living in a tropical environment. Uh, here, we rely a lot on air conditioning to cool our indoor uh, environments. But what it does is that it just takes the heat indoors and uh, transfers it outside. And if you walk outside uh, next to a, you know, a couple of air conditioning plants or condenser units, you really feel that warmth. And that adds on to the heat that you feel from all that concrete and asphalt that I mentioned earlier. So, heat islands, now tell me about heat canyons. <laughs> oh, it's uh, these canyons, what they do is that um, if you walk down any major metropolis, uh, downtown area in, in Sydney, where I visited in August for that uh, urban climate conference that uh, Sebastian and I were a part of, uh, you can imagine that the the interaction between the tall buildings, the skyscrapers, and the roads and the pavements that you walk on, they are akin to a, a sort of a, an urban canyon. And what these canyons do is that they multiply the surface area where these sort of urban materials can absorb heat, and they trap heat and they block winds and they make uh, the, the urban environment, uh, especially for pedestrians who walk at the surface of these urban canyons, they can make it rather uncomfortable. They, you can really feel the heat island, especially at night. And it's areas. not only uncomfortable, it's a, a public health issue because you uh, talk about a spike that in hospitalizations. Indeed. Um, we know that um, people are more exposed to warmer areas in cities. They can be if, um, for instance, if you are a senior walking along the city and you can be predisposed physiologically to heat stress events. Uh, if you're in a, if you are living in a city during a heat wave uh, without air conditioning and at night the heat island makes things worse, you become more exposed and you are at greater risk to all these sort of heat injuries that are not very pleasant. And it must be very dangerous for outdoor workers. 
Indeed it is. That's one of the biggest problems we have uh, in cities, not just in Singapore, but any other rapidly developing city, especially in Asia and in Africa. Uh, All the new cities that require lots of labour to work outdoors and they will be consistently exposed uh, to the warmer conditions from a combination of uh, climate change and from the heat island. So they have to be protected and uh, people have to be aware of the risks of working outdoors. Now, we welcome Sebastian, now, and who's done a lot of urban heat analysis in Western Sydney. Sebastian, how much hotter are our outer suburban areas away from the coast? Hello, Philip, and hello, Winston. Nice to be with you. Um, we regularly, particularly in summer, measure temperature differences up to about 13 degrees Celsius from east to west. So when you go from the harbour um, the Opera, Circular Quay, down to Penrith, which is about 64 kilometers away, you can get a temperature difference um, of about 13 degrees. Um, it's it's rather extreme. I didn't understand that dry heat is a particularly deadly because we sweat less. It depends on how you deal with the dry heat. It can be much more pleasant than in Singapore, what Winston is experiencing all year round, where the high relative humidity makes you stop sweating in extreme heat because you have no more capacity for heat exchange. The dry heat can be particularly um, dangerous for people, even when you're just sitting, you not even need to move much, not even exercise. Because what your body in these extreme temperatures that we see in Western Sydney needs to do is pump all its blood to the surface to cool down where sweat evaporates and then cools the blood in the capillaries down to keep the body core temperature at about 37.4. Now, if if, if you think you're sitting in 45 degrees heat, you need to, even without moving, move your blood around a lot, which means your heart has to work very, very hard. And that is a real danger. Listeners will recall when Penrith was the uh, hottest location on the planet in the summer of 2020, recording that extraordinary 48.9 degrees uh, during a heat wave. But you have often uh, recorded temperatures in excess of 50 degrees Celsius. Sadly, that is true. Um, Fortunately, I'm not there. I've got instruments out there that allow me to record these temperatures remotely. But still, this is a part of the Sydney Basin where we have a priority growth area and we're putting about 400,000 more people in. It's the, the triangle of heat that you see between Windsor, Penrith and Blacktown. And that is, as we know, one of the priority growth areas. Now, urban heat can have a domino effect, not just a a simple health issue. It can lead to poor school attendances, can't it? Because... Well, there's a a clear correlation exacerbating existing... uh, disadvantage in outer urban areas with right. okay. with the now kids falling behind in yes. their education. Yes, and and on top of that, of course, you're absolutely right, um, Philip. On top of that, and we know this from OECD data around the world and also PISA studies from around the world, that with increasing heat, you have decreasing learning outcomes. 
So there's a general disadvantage, and we've been writing about this quite a bit and also doing some research on it. Um, it means if you are in a disadvantaged area, similar to Hispanic and black areas in America, where we have lots of data from, if you're sitting in a school in a disadvantaged suburb in Western Sydney, you're unlikely to have air conditioning, which of course means that during the summer when you are still at school and we're seeing the shoulders of your school holidays getting hotter and hotter. So it's good that the kids are out of school in December, January, but the shoulders of that period are also increasing in air temperature. And if you're sitting in school where your classroom temperature is at 30 degrees and hotter, you're learning much, much less. And that, of course, accumulative over six, seven years in school has a, has a very, very bad effect on um, your, your chances for developing a career later on in life. Back to you, Winston, and uh, back to Singapore. Let's talk about the whole of government approach there. It starts with some basic building design principles, does it not? As you mentioned, Philip, um, it does start with um, individual ministries, individual uh, stakeholders being aware that there is a heat problem uh, and what to do about it requires cross-silo thinking and integration and partnerships. So, for instance, uh, the built environment, we have uh, standards in terms of uh, green standards, similar to the LEED standards that you have in the United States. Uh, we also um, implement a lot of the important heat adaptation measures that uh, the Cooling Singapore Initiative has been studying for the past six years. Uh, one of which is the importance of um, something that um, Sebastian also researches a lot about in, in Sydney, that of green infrastructure, uh, nature-based solutions in terms of large park spaces, in terms of uh, green roofs and green walls. They have a significant, uh, they are significant um, mitigation or adaptation measures in reducing outdoor temperatures. I, I, want, I want to look at uh, tree planting plans <laughs> shortly, but yes. I, before okay. we do, I understand that uh, there's some simple principles like constructing buildings at the right aspect, you know, shading windows Correct. from sun and even Correct. painting rooftops with cool white paints. Indeed, these are all these are all tried and tested and proven methods of reducing outdoor temperatures. But it also includes other more interesting ways of doing so, like smart urban design. So our new uh, financial district in Marina Bay, uh, the buildings, uh, the skyscrapers are sort of staggered in terms of height. So it's not a uniform height, uh, but the differences in height between buildings, they can allow for upper level winds to be captured and brought down to pedestrian level. So, you know, earlier we talked about the problems of not having winds present at pedestrian level. Uh, this is one way where smart urban design incorporated at the planning stage for a precinct can help to cool the environment uh, at, the, at the places where people are most exposed to urban heat. And I guess the citizens are also being educated uh, about the efficient use of air conditioning. 
not just the use of air conditioning. They are educated. Um, I, I have a, a couple of daughters and they grew up in primary school. They learn about how the climate is changing. They learn about the heat island. Uh, they learn about the importance of you know green infrastructure and, and, and the other smart urban design that can be implemented. Uh, they know how to reduce the exposure. Uh, so if it's too hot, um, the schools here as well, they, they change the uniform so that they wear more uh, physical education attire, which is cooler. So it's a lived experience. Uh, the education is uh, very strong and is part of that whole of society um, um, thinking or planning to deal with these sort of heat issues we face in Singapore. Now, let's go back to the trees you mentioned earlier. You argued that we should uh, view trees as a kind of urban infrastructure like electricity or plumbing. The impact is profound? Very much so. Uh, apart, one of the things that I'm a big fan of trees and, and green spaces, uh, they not only just cool the environment, but uh, they also have other what we call ecosystem services. They uh, reduce the risk of flooding, which is also a problem in cities. Um, when you when you, you waterproof the surfaces by having more concrete and asphalt, so flash floods can be more common in cities. And these green infrastructure, these park spaces do a fantastic job of reducing that risk as well. And on top of that, if they are public spaces, they are a great place for recreation. They are a great place for um, urban citizens to be reacquainted with nature, which is, uh, I would argue, a bit of a problem in Singapore when we're all uh, city folk and we need exposure to nature more often than not. Sebastian, in parentheses, uh, what about tree cover in Sydney? Well, the government would like to see 40% tree canopy cover across Greater Sydney, but we're seeing continuously a net decline even though we have state government policies in place, we even have very large um, funding programs for planting trees in place, but we still see a decline in net canopy cover. And the problem here is, um, Philip, that the government is trying really hard. Of course, yes, there may be a tram line or something where they chop down some trees, but the real killer for urban canopy it's happening on private land that's the subdivisions the pools the granny flats uh, that's where we see the largest decline in canopy cover particularly in mature trees which of course it, it one tree can give us 250 square meters of shade which is fantastic for cooling once that's gone and you replace it with this silly one-to-one -one solution, uh, you replace it with maybe one square metre of, of shade. That, of course, has a huge impact collectively across Greater Sydney. Now, Winston, you found in Singapore that you get better results when trees are planted together in large green spaces. Tell us about uh, Singapore's Marina Bay project. <sighs> Yes, uh, the Marina Bay project uh, has been developing over the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, there's uh, ample amount of integrated planning. There's a lot of uh, park spaces. There's a lot of street trees as well that provide the important uh, shading elements that uh, Sebastian mentioned earlier. Uh, it's not just the cooling from um, the trees uh, transpiring, but also the shade provided from the sun, which we in our Cooling Singapore research, we find to be extremely critical for 
for reducing heat risk for pedestrians. Uh, on top of that, there's other aspects to reduce heat. The the, the bay itself is uh, it, it helps to cool by evaporation. Uh, the Marina Bay buildings itself, apart from the smart urban design that I mentioned earlier, that helps to bring wind down to pedestrian level. A lot of the air conditioning for the big uh, hotel spaces and the convention centers in in Marina Bay they are powered by they are cooled by district level cooling as opposed to individual air conditioning condenser units. Uh, there's uh, efficiencies of scale that make sure that um, the, the cooling for these sort of buildings, uh, it requires less um, fossil fuel energy that Singapore still uses for its power generation. And all in all, the net cumulative effect of all these measures um, try, will, will, will lead to a significant um, reduction in urban heat for that area. Sebastian, Australia can learn a lot from Singapore, can't it? Absolutely. I'm missing green roofs and green facades. We still have a climate where we can have them, and we're still not seeing enough uh, where the industry really pushes towards incorporating these cooling structures, as Winston pointed out, at the planning stage into the buildings, because retrofitting these kind of green infrastructures is very difficult if you don't have the architecture in your building that can support the additional weight. So, yeah. We, we can learn a lot. I understand you're particularly annoyed by the ongoing construction of large homes with black roofs. Oh, don't get me started on the black roofs. The night is not long <laughs> enough. <laughs> yes, it's the lowest of the low-hanging fruit, and we can't <laughs> get it done. We can't get rid of them. It is so annoying. Gentlemen, thank you for coming onto the program and uh, wising us up on climatic climatic matters in uh, large cities. My guests have been uh, Dr. Sebastian Fausch, Associate Professor in Urban Planning and Management at uh, Western Sydney University. And joining us from uh, Singapore Management University was Dr. Winston Chow. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.